Most of you know about six weeks ago we came home um, with our latest addition in our family, our 14-year-old son Joseph from Liberia. And I was really excited last weekend because we got to take a road trip together. And it's the first time I got to spend like several hours um, uninterrupted with him. We were driving to Pella and I had about four or five hours in the car. And it's amazing because you realize that you're seeing all these things through somebody else's eyes from somewhere else in the world. And I'm pointing out coming up on the horizon along I-80, just these fields of wind turbines. And, I, and he's asking me what they're for and what they do, and I'm explaining this all to him. There's almost like this sense of pride within me, like, isn't it cool what we've done? Like, like somehow I played some sort of role in building or engineering these things. And we do that with sort of our association with the things around us, but it was his commentary on it that struck me. He was mesmerized by how far they went and how many there were. And he said, it's too much. And then I was excited because on I-80, you go through the Capitol, we're by Des Moines, and I want to show him the Capitol building, and it's beautiful, and the whole downtown, and he'd never really seen like a, a CBD of a city, and I, we were driving by, and I'm pointing it out, and the lights are on at night. And he said, it's too big. And then we went and we worshipped on Sunday morning at this church. And this church that we were at is, is huge. And we're touring through it and we're, we're spending time in the morning in the prayer tower. And then went to one auditorium for a service. And we went to a sanctuary for a different service afterwards. We were having this amazing experience together. And I said, what do you think of this? And he said, it's too much. And he didn't just mean it in the sense of like I'm drinking from a fire hose and I'm having a hard time taking it all in. This is sort of a Liberian idiom that you sort of use in language when you're overwhelmed or just awestruck by something. It's too much. It's too big. It's too nice. As I'm beginning to see the world through his eyes, I'm beginning to realize more and more that Christianity, as it's embodied by different people and different cultures throughout the world, experience God in very different ways. And each one of them has its beautiful parts, and each one of them has its limitations. And it's actually through his eyes and through his experience that I'm beginning to see more and more of our own limitations. We were driving a little further along, and as the conversation lulled, he turns to me and asks me how long I'd been a pastor now, and I explained it to him. And then he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, how many demons have you cast out? We talked for a little while about that. He said, how many people have you healed? And I talked a lot about how we've ex I've experienced every time I'm, I'm in Africa healing so much differently than the church in America often does this. And I realized that your faith begins to shape differently when your knee-jerk reaction in the middle of an emergency situation isn't to dial 911 but to drop to your knees in prayer. Your faith begins to take shape a very different way. And then knowing the pastor that he grew up under and the one who had led him into faith, he asks me one more question. He says, how many people have you raised from the dead? With an expectancy that if you're a pastor and you're, you're working and living inside of this gospel, this should just be commonplace. Or like it would be really weird if you were going to tell me that you've never done that. Do you see what I mean? That their experience of Christianity is very different in mind. There's an authority and there's a, a plea and a petitioning of God that he knows and has experienced growing up in one of the most impoverished and war-torn and Ebola-stricken places on the planet. 
we met the pastor of that church the night before, and we were praying together, and the pastor was struck by Joseph's prayer. And so the next Sunday morning in church, in front of a thousand people, in the middle of the sermon, he actually invites Joseph up to pray for him. He talks about it being convicted by the night before. And so Joseph walks up in front of this large church of people. And I'm thinking, a 14-year-old in a different part, in a different country on the other side of the world, you should probably be pretty nervous right now. No hesitation whatsoever. He says, I'm going to need you all to stand. You're going to need to join hands. And then he just starts praying over this congregation. To the point that when he was done, the authority that he spoke was just sort of unfamiliar. The pastor comes back up and says, I just want you to talk for a minute in groups and about what just happened here. Not really knowing what else to do in the middle of that moment. You see what I mean, how I'm starting to experience this different through his eyes? One of his greatest struggles that he's having with his experience of American Christianity is he says, I don't understand why you guys don't fast. And I've never really understood this. For people who've grown up in a place where you literally have gone many days where you did not know if you would have your next meal or you didn't know of the security of knowing it would come from, to willingly choose to go without for the purpose of petitioning God for something else. He got to visit another student who goes here from Africa a couple Saturdays ago. And he was challenging him and asking him, why do you think the American church doesn't fast? It's just such a part of his faith life that he can't really understand. How could you pray and not do this? And the answer they came up with together that he came home with is, well, I guess, I guess in the American church you just don't need to pray the same way if you already have. Well, almost everything. That was his conclusion, that that's why we don't fast. Maybe there's more to his answers in observing everything that I really realized at first. It's too much. It's too big. It's too much. Is there a point where we've actually gotten to the place where we have too much that it's actually become the greatest threat to the development of our faith. That if I'm 80% a self-made man and there's really only 20% left for God in my life, and my knee-jerk reaction in the middle of a case of emergency is to reach out to the powers of man and not just to God. Not that those things aren't bad. Not that it's wonderful that we have those luxuries. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when your place of God is very much secondary to what you believe can be responded to by man in that moment, are we closer to being humanists than we are being Christians? Are we developing a type of Christianity without Christ? Are we actually deeper believers in the fact that we are self-made men and women than we are creatures fully and entirely dependent on God? And so he's forcing me to ask myself all of these questions, and I'm thinking about these parts of my life, where for him, Christ is just simply in control. And for me, I'm not, not so sure yet. Am I developing, in many ways, a Christianity without Christ? I've thought about it before, the amount of luxury I've experienced in education and the opportunities I've had in getting to go to college for nine years. I mean, I got a lot of things in my biblical studies toolbox. Like, I could probably pull off a sermon and actually preach without having done devotions or prayed. And, and like, can we wear our Christianity? Can we walk through the motions of this? Can we live out our faith? Are we learning our own form of hypocrisy 
or maybe at the very least our own form of an anemic Christianity because we're theologically obese and we're choking on our own affluence or that it's kind of just lost on us that everybody in this room is actually in the top tenth of the top one percent of the wealthiest people in the world. How different would your prayer life be if you grew up somewhere else? Is it possible to cultivate a faith with Jesus on the outside? The famous preacher G. Campbell Morgan once wrote a sermon on the text we're going to study today, and his sermon was entitled, To the Church with Jesus on the Outside. And as we look at this text today, I want you to see if there's parallels for you between where the American church is at today, or maybe even just where your or my faith is at today, and the experience of the Laodiceans. We've been walking through these seven letters to the seven churches, and now we're at the last one, and we've sort of followed this chiastic movement where we've walked through the center and all the way back out, and we reach this, this letter where Jesus has some harsh words, and we've come across this theme of apathy over and over again, and we've come across this command over and over and over again of, look, open your eyes, there's a different reality than the one that you see. And maybe I'm wondering what that same command is, the perception that I have of my Christian faith actually different than the perception that Jesus Jesus has of my faith. I don't know. So we looked at these charts and I employed all those biblical toolbox ideas that I had talked about earlier and studied the texts and pulled them all apart and made fancy charts and things like this. But today we really come to the heart and the core of all of these messages. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Laodicea is situated in the Lycus River Valley. You can see on this six miles off is Colossa one way, and, and ten miles up the road the other way across the river valley is Herapolis. These are often regarded in their days as the sister cities. In fact, they even received letters written to each other and they were supposed to pass on from Paul. In Colossians 4.16, he says in the letter to Colossa that they are actually to read the letter that was also written to Laodicea and they were supposed to trade these around and there was this close affinity between these churches. Unfortunately, we don't have the letter to Laodicea that was written, but we see this church referenced again here in the seven letters. Some of the remains to this day in the city of Laodicea was a center of incredible bank and commerce. It sat at international trade routes, and banking and commerce were the center of it all. It was an incredibly wealthy community. 
So it stood right in the middle of this, and this is what it was known for, for, for all of its wealth. What was interesting about this town, though, is the way that it received its water from Herapolis and from Colossae. Let me explain. We've seen in each of these seven letters that Jesus demonstrates his intimate knowledge of each of us and of each of these cities and locales and these churches because each church is literally, in many ways, drinking the water, and also metaphorically, drinking the water of the place where it exists. Its context is shaping it. The cultural context of the American church is shaping it. The cultural context of the Liberian church is shaping it. The cultural context of the Chinese church is shaping it. I know your deeds that you're neither hot, nor cold, nor hot, and I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Some people have taken this text to mean I wish you were either super on fire as a Christian or just a cold agnostic, because at least then that would be more honest and true. But I don't think that's where the text is really saying. This is a picture right outside Hierapolis, that city six miles away. You can actually see these cliffs from Laodicea. It's on a hillside, and there's a, it, Laodicea, or sorry, Hierapolis is, is situated on the top of a, of a hill or mountain, and these hot, natural mineral hot springs to this day bubble up in the middle of the town. And as they run out from the city down over these cliffs that are 300 feet wide and about a mile wide, so bigger than Niagara Falls, they pick up calcium carbonate as they roll over and end up eventually looking like this. Another picture of them. So these hot springs would flow down and they'd pick up all of these minerals and it would cool off as the water ran down the valley and would get closer and closer to Laodicea. Those hot springs are still there to this day. Now they're all channeled into hotel pools like this one in that city, and people come from all over the world. In fact, those cliffs were, in 1988, made a world heritage site, and people come from all over to visit it. The water was channeled through these aqueducts, these are remains to this day, that ran six miles across to get to Laodicea through three-foot-wide pipes. It would run across the valley and it would come to them. So Hierapolis on the one side has its own natural water source, but it's, it's hot, but by the time it would get there, it would be full of minerals and chemicals, and it was barely even drinkable at that point in time. It was awful to the taste. Now the other city in these sister cities is Colossa, right near Mount Cadmus, which has its natural water source of almost an alpine river that flows off. This is a picture of that mountainside to, in modern day. The way this clean water filtered through moss and all the natural parts of geography of the mountain clean it as it falls. The alpine runoff comes in and it's cool and Colossa has had this continual and constant clean and refreshing water source. And so you can hear in the middle of this as Jesus is saying to the city, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. You're not like the warm and healing water of the mineral springs of Herapolis. And you're not the cool and refreshing water like Colossa. You're just kind of lukewarm. You don't have a life source of your own. And he's talking about their historical setting in a way that would have meant so much to them. You see, the church in Laodicea has drunk deeply from the water of its community. And the church of Laodicea has become disgusting to the taste of Jesus. They're not warm or healing. They're not cool or refreshing. They're not providing for the people around them. 
Is this not what's wrong with the American church today? Is this part of what's wrong with our own faith? Is there a lukewarmness to us? This word I'm about to spit you out of my mouth is kind of a tame translation. It really should be probably like vomit. Like you induce a sense of sickness within me. Like could Jesus have said something harsher to the church than that? You make me sick. You make me want to throw up. C.S. Lewis in his book, God in the Dock, once said this, that Jesus produced mainly three effects in people, hatred, terror, and adoration. And there was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Wouldn't it be so convenient, though, if in our Christianity we could express just mild approval of God? Mild approval of what Jesus has done so we can kind of keep him a little bit, a little bit at, at a distance and on the outside. Because I think for a lot of us, our ambitions in life, we're still trying to reconcile with what it is that God wants for us. I have a son growing up in my home who talked to my, me and my wife the other day and, and admitted to us that every morning I wake up and I pray that one day I'll be rich. What he doesn't know is his mom's been praying for years, Lord, please don't ever let my children become wealthy. Why would she pray that? I mean, it's statistically proven that in the American church, that people who grow up, that the more money we make, chances are the less we give away, that we have a hard time living out a vibrant faith, and that one of the greatest threats to our faith is our comfort. It's the very things that we call blessings. Now, we come out of a Reformed tradition here, and so we have often mocked things that we would refer to as the prosperity gospel, that Jesus comes to make your life better. And yet I realize in every single one of us and in my own faith life that when hard things come our way, we start asking God questions like, where were you on that one? Or what have I done wrong? And we start looking for some sort of formula to fix it. Like, do we not realize that that's its own form of a prosperity gospel? To believe that Jesus' existence in our life was somehow to make it easier and that he would sort of come around to our own ambitions. I was talking about this passage this morning with John, and he said it like this. I thought it was fantastic. Like in conveying all of this to each one of us, our own dreams and ambitions, you dream about being a teacher, but you dream about being an engineer, you dream about being a nurse, you dream about what that career is going to look like, but in your imagination and what you imagine the fulfillment of all of your life to be, is there an openness to having everything flipped upside down by Jesus in the middle of it all? You see, because if we become too comfortable... We become at a lot of risk, like the church in Laodicea, who's in this comfortable place. Are we capable of producing a Christianity without Christ? Or if I'm 80% a self-made man, have I left only 20% of my life open to the movement of God? Laodicea had some other things that it was famous for. There was a medical school that was famous the world over for its ability to heal eyes. They produced a salve that was put on the eyes, and it was central globally for its study and knowledge in ophthalmology. And one of the other things it was famous for is that local breeders for a long time, um, some believe centuries, had been refining a particular breed of sheep that could produce the purest, most beautiful black wool that was sought for clothing the world over. There was a status symbol that came from that city of this pure black wool that was hard to find elsewhere and was a, a demarcation of this city amongst others and set them apart. 
And then in 61 AD, it was decimated by an earthquake. In fact, all the area cities were around them. Philadelphia, Sardis, all of them. But they all received assistance from Rome to rebuild. But what's fascinating about Laodicea, and so 61 AD, this would have been 35 years before this letter is being written, Laodicea did something that none of the other cities in this part of the world did. They refused Roman aid. Like, how rich and comfortable do you have to be to say, it's all right, I'm good, when somebody offers you money? And this is the place of Laodicea because this is what pride does. It's been said, of course, pride comes before the fall, but pride also comes before the place where Jesus starts to be on the outside when we don't realize our awareness and our need for him anymore. I think that's what Jesus is talking about when he says to them, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need anything. You're the city who said, thanks Rome, we're good, we don't need your money, we've got enough going on here. At the same time there was trouble in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem church had requested help. There were several thousand Jews who were living in Laodicea at this time. An offering was taken, 22 and a half pounds of gold were collected in that offering and sent to Jerusalem to provide relief for that church. These people have a ton of wealth. They have all kinds of great things going on and they look good in the clothing that they wear. But how deeply are they drinking from the water of their community and their culture? When you're so strong and so wealthy that you don't need help. You know, it's interesting that for each one of us here, right? You go through this stage of life and you probably have to borrow money from parents, from government loans, whatever the case might be. And we have this cultural definition of maturity and strength, of arriving at a place of financial independence. Right? A lot of our, our definition of maturity is defined by this. Can we arrive at a place where we're financially independent? We don't need anybody else's help anymore. But like, do we understand that that's actually the antithesis of mark of maturity in Christianity? Those who are growing up strong in their faith don't ever arrive at a place where they've actually arrived. A deepening knowledge and faith in Christ only takes us to a deeper awareness of our need for him. The richer you become in Christ, the more aware you are of your poverty. The greatest indicator of the fact that we are growing in our faith is that we're hungry and realize that we don't have everything and that we need more and that we need more Christ. That my maturity in life will not be marked by a declining need for other people or other things, but actually for more. I was confronted with this last year when we began this adoption journey. And at 40 years old, I was really hoping I was never going to have to ask anybody for money ever again. Like it's just, it's a pride thing. And we needed to in order to complete that process. And there were other people I noticed in it who were blessed. They were excited to participate in that story. And it blessed us immensely. And I could tell it blessed them. But man, did that take a shot at my pride. I don't want help from anybody else. Are you in the same boat? Like, do you, not, you don't want help from other people. And I think this is trickling back into our faith and our understanding of Christ. We need to be constantly aware of our incredible poverty. You say I'm rich. You say this will be your independence, but what if it's actually your undoing in faith? What if independence actually undermines your interdependence on Christ, on the church, on the body that you need? You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, Blind and naked. You see what he's saying in the middle of that? 
poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refine in the fire, so you can become rich. And white clothes, white clothes, because those are the ones you wear after baptism, not the fancy black wool that's sold in your city that everybody's famous for that says, I've arrived. I want you to stay in white. Reminder of your baptism, of your dependence, of your, the dying and rising that you're participating in with Christ. That's what I can give you, Jesus is saying. You can cover your shameful nakedness. I don't care how expensive your clothes are. It, de- it demonstrates a shameful nakedness if it's not being covered in the clothing of Christ. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. You think you've provided the best answer for the world's problems in eyesight. But I want want to tell you, Jesus is saying, you can't even see. I will open up the eyes of your faith. And only I can do that. That's why Jesus' language here gets so strong. Those I love, I rebuke and discipline. In his commentary on this in his book, The Seven Churches, William Barclay says it like this. It's a fact of life that the best athlete and the finest scholar receive the hardest and most demanding training. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. It's been said that when the gospel is preached right, it comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. Are there places in our life where we really need to be afflicted more by the gospel? We need to arrive at a greater sense of our dependence. Where we've actually developed a part of our identity and a part of our strength apart from our Christianity. Is there a part of your Christianity that's growing without Christ? John reminded me again of the story this morning of Mother Teresa on her visit to America, seeing all these capital campaign projects and buildings and cathedrals and Christian colleges, and and her final summation of the entire experience was simply to say, wow, it's amazing what the American church has done without God. Right, that we can do these things without, we can cover it in our Christian language at times, but is it really a total and complete dependence on him? I guess I realized through reading this passage and seeing my faith through my son's eyes that there is part of my Christianity that's probably disgusting to the taste of Jesus. Is it my affluence? My theological obesity? The absence of hardship in my life and how hard I strive to make life for myself and my kids easier. That I believe I need to chase after a path of least resistance first and foremost. Is that what I'm striving for? See, but Jesus isn't looking for discipleship that's just masochism. He's not looking for a bunch of spiritual adrenaline junkies who give everything away so they can become dependent on anybody else. That's not where he's going. Those I love and rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. I will develop close intimacy with them. If you are in a part of your life as Jesus on the outside, if we're a church with Jesus on the outside, he's knocking at the door saying, I want to come in. I want to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And here's the thing about what Jesus does. If we give ourselves 100% in full and complete surrender, and that's the pursuit of our life to Christ, we often think at the onset of that we're going to have to give something up about ourselves, but he gives us back more of ourselves. And he makes us become more alive. And he takes all those dreams and ambitions that you have for your career. And then he runs them through the refinement of his own words and his own truth. And then he changes us and sanctifies us and he makes them beautiful. He's not challenging us because he just simply wants you to struggle. God is challenging us because he wants to give us life the only way we can come alive. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. 
Like, I want to share everything with you, even the highest honor that God has given me. I will share even that with you. Just don't try to do this on your own. What part of your life are you living on your own right now? I'm getting convicted of several of these right now. What is the Spirit saying to you? Those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Will you please rise and receive a parting blessing the rest of your day? Children of a loving, redeeming, and purifying God, may you be afflicted by Jesus in all the right places. May you be challenged and confronted in the places where he wants to redeem even more. Maybe give back to you in a new way. May your discipleship be a constant and continual pursuit of surrender so that you can come alive like never before. In his name and in his love, go in peace. Amen.